Well, good evening, children. And it is good to see you here tonight. This is sort of a different way to have church, isn't it? Have this light set up like this. And you know what? There are some places in the world that this is how a lot of people would have church, just like this. And so now we can sort of relate to them and how they have church sometimes in their churches. Maybe they're in a house or something that have a few lights set up. And they still get to meet together and talk about Jesus and worship together. Well, tonight I'd like to tell you a little story that uh, I liked when I was growing up, and it's about a sheep. You guys, do you guys have any, you know, have anybody have any sheep at all? No one has. You got some sheep? Okay. Your aunt Joda, you know what? You know what? Yeah, that's sort of fun, isn't it? You know what? So Colson, my son, he has an aunt Joe too, and they have sheep. And uh, it's pretty. Yeah, I have a brother named Keith, and he lives way down in Georgia. You guys know where Georgia is at? And it's way down south of Georgia. And he has sheep. And you know what's pretty interesting is that when it comes time for supper or dinner, and my brother goes walking out, and he says. Then, then, the sheep come running. Now, do you know which one of the sheep come running first? The old sheep or the young sheep? What do you think? The young ones? Actually, it's the old ones that come running first. The old sheep come running first. And do you know why that is? What do you think? The reason the old sheep come running first is because... The old sheep know my brother's voice. They learned his voice. And as they hear him calling out to them, the old sheep come running, and then the young sheep come running after. And it's a lot like the Christian life and, and, and Jesus. And right now, your parents hear what Jesus says in his word. They read his word. They pray to him. They listen to him. And then they tell you what to do, and you listen to your parents. And that's how God has set it up to work. And then as you get older, you begin to read the Bible, and you listen to God and what he says, and then you can listen to what he speaks to. But it's sort of a neat idea of how sheep work and shepherds work. Just like my brother, he's a shepherd. I'm a shepherd brother. And he has sheep. He takes care of them. Well, the Lord loves children very much, too. And it talks about the Bible, how Jesus said to the children, Let the little children come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus loves little children very, very much. He calls you little lambs. The Bible talks about that. And how you are very precious to him. And he would take the children and put them in his lap and hold them and he blessed them. Can you imagine sitting in Jesus' lap? Remember what that would be like to sit in his lap of Jesus? I always think that'd be pretty neat. Well, I'd like to tell you about a little story about a lamb. And I brought along, this is a story that I grew up listening to when I was about your age. We had a tape. And uh, it's a story about a, sh a little lamb named Blister. All right, I want to tell you a little story about a lamb by the name of Blister. So once upon a time, a long time ago, in a faraway country, there lived a little lamb. In the beginning, he couldn't do much because he was still learning to walk. He would look at his rather wobbly legs, and he would sit there trying to learn to walk. He'd like, eh, left right front foot, eh, left right front foot, eh, left back foot, eh. And he would fall down and start all over again. But as soon as his legs started working, he started getting stubborn and independent. You get stubborn and independent? You ever have a fight? This is Blister. He was getting stubborn and independent. Now, the only way to learn anything, the little lamb, is to listen to your elders. And the first word he ever spoke was when his elders came to him and said this, You have to eat your, the, your clover down to the roots, stems and all, so you can get all the chlorophyll and vitamins. To which Blister said, <laughs> Which wasn't very nice. Well, when it came to name him, the elders talked it over and decided, if ignorance is bliss, then he's a little blister. And with a name like that, it's hard, it's hard to tell if he learned anything in his life. 
Well, from the minute Blister got all four legs working, he wanted to go off into the world to seek his fortune. Adventure! Excitement is what I want. Well, adventure and excitement was what he was going to get sooner than he realized. It all began one day when Blister was practicing his stem, Christy, that's going downhill on rocky ground, and he looked across the field and saw his owners talking to some other people. And he walked over and said, what are they doing? He said to his auntie Mitten. She said, we're going to market. We're going to be sold. Sold? But before she could give another answer, the dogs came around and barked them and, and drove Blister and the rest of the elders down the hill, down to the market. Well, the market was teeming with excitement. There were all kinds of things to learn. There were sheep and goats and donkeys and chickens, and Blister was learn all he could while he was at the market. He said, how come you can stand so good on two feet? He said to a chicken. And the chicken preened herself and said, I can stand better on one foot than you can on four. Which Blister said, which wasn't very nice. But before he could take a breath to say anything else, his auntie Mitten nudged him. Mister, you've been sold to that man over there. He's our shepherd. And Richard said, What? I don't want to be sold. I want adventure and excitement. And she said, What, you foolish lamb? You were getting all kinds of trouble. Ah, I'm not. I can take care of myself. I won't be so. I won't. I won't. I won't. But before he could get any farther, the shepherd moved in closer and looked at Blister with the kindest eyes he had ever seen. And Blister said, I'd better get away before I start to like you. And began to creep off into the shadows. But the shepherd reached out with his hand and he hooked Blister. And he said, Come. This one. Yes, sir. But inside he said, Boy, very nice. Well, they walked along and Blister had the made was quite lovely. There was blue skies and green grass and clover and small pools of water to drink in. And the shepherd was very kind and he didn't treat Blister like he was a bad little man at all. It seemed like he loved them. And they walked and walked and at last they came to Blister's new home. It was a giant stone wall built in a square. And he said, what is that? And his elder said, that's a sheepfold. That's our new home. He said, are we going to sleep in there? There's no door. Where's the door? And the shepherd smiled, his white teeth flashing. He looked at Blister as if he knew what he was saying. And he said this, I am the door. No one can come through here except first passing me. And he pulled up his sleeves and his arms were covered with scars, with many battles with wolves and with lions. And he said, I would die to save you. And Lister was pretty impressed, but he wasn't quite so. He still wanted adventure and excitement. And that night as the sun was going down and all the sheep were going to the sheepfold, Lister snuck off into the shadows and got away. And he began running down the hill. And he said, I'm free! I'm free! Woohoo! I'm free! And all of a sudden, I don't want any more adventure in my life. And he began crying out, 
Somebody help me. Auntie Mitten, Uncle Wally, somebody help me. And above the noise of rain and the storm, Lister heard something. Lister! Blister, where are you? Somebody was calling him by his name. Somebody knew his name. Blister, where are you? And just above the crevice, he heard some feet shuffling. And he looked up, and it was his shepherd. And he cried out, Master, shepherd, I'm here, I'm here. And the shepherd heard Blister's voice and came down close to him and reached down with his staff. And very gently he took Blister and he picked him up very gently, pulled him up and up and pulled him to safety. And he took Blister and he put him inside his coat next to his heart. And he said, Come, that's the heart. And they walked back through the storm and the rains, but inside Blister was safe. He was with his shepherd. They got back to the sheepfold, and the shepherd took little Blister and set him down. And Blister walked in, and he was home at last, safe with his other sheep. And the shepherd took his coat and sat back down again into the doorway and went to sleep. Blister was safe at last at home. You know, children. What the Bible says about what Jesus is called. You know what he's called? Shepherd. He's called a shepherd and he's called a good shepherd. The Bible says, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Mm -hmm. That's who Jesus is. And he cares about each one of you very much. Sometimes we want to go off and try to find adventure and excitement in life, don't we? I want to do things what I want to do. But Jesus says, come. Come with me and follow me. But right now, as young children, your mom, your Jesus gave you moms and dads to teach you about him. And he wants you to love him with all your heart. And as you continue to grow, you continue to love him and to follow him all the rest of your life. But he calls you home. Be with him in heaven someday. All right. I thought we'd just sing one song that we all know very well. How about we sing Jesus loves me? Do that song, and then I'll pray and after your parents. All right. Your parents can help. All right. Let's sing Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. This I know. one of you as well. I, uh, I don't know if you ever heard of Aunt uh, Ethelbert. Ethelbert, that's right. Ethelbert. It was uh, some stories I used to grow up with when I was young, and that was one of my favorite stories to uh, listen to. I can still hear the way she would make those sounds with blister. 
<laughs> still, in, still in my head. Okay, you heard this already. I have, eat your roots down the stems and all. You know, I can still hear her how she used to say that. <clears throat> I always liked those stories. Thank you for the psalms. Thank you, Ernie, for the uh, devotions there. I'm amazed that the very first words of the book of John, of the recorded of Jesus speaking, the very first words that we have recorded of Jesus speaking are this. He says, what seek ye? What seek ye? And I think you see the whole book of John written then of different people seeking and trying to understand who Christ is. And that's what the book of John was written. It says, these things are written that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, and through his name you can have eternal life. And then the very end of the book of John. And so I appreciate this, your devotions there, Ernie, very much. <clears throat> well, tonight I would like to uh, look at a little bit now. So we looked at the Lord's will for our life, what is God's will for our life the first night, and then looked at, um, looked at who God is last night. And tonight I'd like to look maybe a little bit more at ourselves. Who am I? We just see who God is and then look at ourselves and what perhaps are there some blueprints for us, what it looks like to live a Christian life in sanctification and in holiness. I'd like to start off here by looking at uh, just sharing two little illustrations to begin with. One's a little bit more of a lighthearted story and then one other one is a true story that I came across. But the first one is a story of... Uh, of a boy by the name of Johnny, little Johnny, and uh, he was longing for a bicycle for, um, he, was, he was looking for a uh, bicycle for his birthday, and he was trying to decide how he should do it, so he thought maybe he should pray about it. And uh, so he wasn't sure how he should pray to get what he wanted. And so he turned on a certain radio preacher and he began to listen. It was one of these high church type preachers, traditional high church type of people. And he knelt down by his bed that night and he prayed like this. Holy, heavenly, eternal Father in heaven, that's in your perfect will and in your perfect time as you see fit, I ask thee that thou wouldst provide for me a bicycle. I did it on my front porch at 6 30 tomorrow morning. World without end. Amen. The next morning, little Johnny walked outside and there was no bicycle. And so he was a little discouraged about this, so he thought maybe he didn't do it quite right, and so he prayed a different way. And he prayed like this. He listened to more of a uh, charismatic, Pentecostal type of preacher, and he prayed like this. He said, Dear Jesus, I declare my need for a bicycle. And then it would be silver with blue stripes and sitting on my porch by 6.30 tomorrow morning. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Amen. Well, that night he woke, went to bed and woke up the next morning and walked out and there was still no bicycle. And so being somewhat discouraged by all of this, he was walking around his home and thinking about what he should do. And his mom was watching him and he, she saw all of a sudden and she, he walked over to a nativity scene that they had set up there. And he grabbed the statue of Mary and ran outside with it. And a few minutes later, he came walking in without the statue of Mary. And he saw, she was watching him and he knelt down by his bed and he said this. Dear Jesus, if you want to see your mom again, <laughs> bite on my front porch. Let me ask you this. If people could see you in your private prayer life, or your private devotional life, what would they think about who God really is? They could see the way you prayed and how you would talk and to see you in your private life at all. What would they think about who God is? You know, I, I stand up here and preach and say th things and People come and say, that was just so wonderful. And they can start saying things that are very nice. And I say, I just want to say, please don't go talk to my children when you talk to these things. Because, you know, my private life is my private life, isn't it? 
I can stand up here and say wonderful things about God and what His Word, but I still go home and have to live my life yet. And there are things about me that only my family would know. And so if you could really see me in my private life, in my private prayer life, or any of that, what would you conclude about who God really is? Well, there's another story I had heard as well, and it's about, it's a true story, about a, uh, a man by the name of Andre Stamos. And uh, he was a Hungarian man who was a revolutionary from the Hungarian, uh, he was a Hungarian revolutionary who was going up against the Soviet Union. And uh, he, was, he was there to uh, try to overthrow the Soviet Union, and he was caught and thrown into solitary confinement. He was 20 years old when he was there. Strong, robust young man going up to take out the government. And so he was, uh, he was caught at 20 years old and put into solitary confinement. In the year 2000, I believe it was, the Soviet Union was beginning to disband, and they were trying to, get, to see what they should do with all these political prisoners that they had in their prisons. And one of them was Andrei Stamos. And uh, they, they went to meet with him, and uh, the guy did not make any sense to him. He was speaking some gibberish, and they thought this guy had completely lost his mind, and they were just trying to figure out how they get rid of him to make this go away. And the Hungarian government had heard about it, and so they sent up a psychiatrist from their, from their group to uh, see if they could do anything. They said, could we speak to this man? Could we talk to him and just see if we could do anything for him before you go do what you're thinking of doing? And so this, they said, sure, we'll let you do that. So they walk, he, the Hungarian psychiatrist went walking in there and he came back out about an hour later and he said, uh, this man is not insane. His, his mind has been messed with being inside your confinement all these years, but we think we could help him. Would you please give him to us? We'll try to make him well. And so the Soviet Union said, that's fine, just get him off our hands. This was 55 years later, after he's been put in a solitary confinement. And if you never heard this story, I would guess you would never guess what it was, the first thing that he asked for as they were wheeling him out of that prison. very first thing that he asked for was a mirror. He hadn't seen his face in 70 or 55 years. And he took this mirror, again this mirror, he looked at it for a couple of seconds, put it into his lap, and began crying uncontrollably. The last time he had seen his face, he was strong, robust, ready to take on the world kind of guy. And now here he was, a 75-year-old, wizened, beaten-down old man, taken to be insane. He looked at himself and said, what happened to me? Put it in his lap again, crying uncontrollably. I had a grandpa like that, and it happened to him. And one day he looked into the mirror and said, what happened to me? How did I get here? Well, I would ask you this. Is there a mirror for the soul? Is there a mirror for the soul that we can look into and say, this is what a life ought to look like that's been lived faithfully through it all? You know, we like to sometimes come in and I understand how it is. We, we want to make ourselves look good and right and there's nothing wrong with that. But I did think about something, and you know, if, if each one of us would have walked in here into, our, into the church tonight, and what we look like on the inside would be on the outside. Of who I really am on the inside. And I would walk into this church and everybody could see who I really am. Would I be ashamed of what people saw? Or maybe if my whole life could be put up onto this wall here from the projector and everybody could see who I really am, would I be ashamed of that? Would there be any shame of that? Or is, is there a mirror for the soul? 
I titled the message here, The Disciplines of a Godly Man. The Disciplines of a Godly Man or a Godly Person. I would like to look at a man that has meant a lot to me. I'd like to look at a man tonight and Lord willing tomorrow night, looking at two men who look at ourselves, and then Friday look at maybe more of a relationship with each other, and also Sunday morning, and then Saturday looking at it, maybe a message more for the youth, and then uh, we'll see once how we end up on Sunday night. But I'd like to look at a man tonight by the name of Daniel. Looking at the life of Daniel here tonight. If you want to turn with me into your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1, and we'd like to look at the first eight verses here. Now to give you a little bit of a context of what is happening here, I should almost take you back about a thousand years to the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy, God gives several warnings to the, the people of Israel, and if you forget these things, you're going to end up back into the enemy's camp. And he gives it to us in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Maybe I should turn to that first. Deuteronomy chapter 8. About a thousand years before, um, Moses gives some instruction to the Israelites, and he gives them three great truths they must never forget. Deuteronomy was is considered the uh, favorite book of Jesus. He, he, he uh, quoted from the book of Deuteronomy more than any other book in the Old Testament. And Deuteronomy chapter 8 is what sometimes is considered the favorite chapter of Jesus. He quoted more from this chapter than any other chapter in Deuteronomy. But in Deuteronomy chapter 8, he's going to give us, I'm going to point out three principles or three great truths that they were not to ever forget as they were going into the, the promised land here. That if, if they forget these, they're going to end up back in the enemy's camp. So Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 1, it says this, all of the commandments which I command you this day shall ye observe to do, that ye may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord sware unto your fathers. And thou shalt remember, this is what you're supposed to remember, all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldst keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger. And fed thee with manna which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Thy raiment waxed not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these forty years. Thou shalt also consider in thy heart that as a man chasteneth his son, so the Lord thy God chasteneth thee. Therefore thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. There are three principles that he gives in this section of verses. Number one it is this, is the principle of humility. The principle of humility. God could have taken those Israelites on maybe a six-week journey from Egypt into the Promised Land. It could have been a very quick journey for them if, they, if, if, if it would have worked out that way. But God took them on a 40-year journey through the wilderness. And he gives here the reason for it. He said it was to humble you and to show you what's in your own hearts. I'll tell you this. The day you begin to see your heart like God sees it will be the day that it changes your life. When you begin to see yourself the way you really are, not the picture that I'm putting on, but who I really am as God sees me will be the day that changes your life. And I think sometimes God has to take us through these wilderness experiences in order to humble us and to show us who we really are and to test us whether we are going to keep his commandments or not. I came across a quote a couple of years ago by the name, by a man by the name of Thomas Aquinas. And uh, he wrote something that was pretty difficult for me to read, but as I thought about it, I, I wonder if it's not a lot of truth to it. And he talks about the issue of pride that we all have to deal with, the great sin of pride and self. And this is what he said. In order to overcome pride... God will punish certain men by allowing them to fall into sins of the flesh. 
which though actually are less grievous than pride itself, are outwardly more shameful. From this indeed the gravity of pride is made manifest. For just as a wise physician in order to cure a worse disease allows the patient to contract one that is less dangerous, so that the sin of pride is shown to be more grievous by the very fact that as a remedy, God allows some of them to fall into other sins. What he's saying is this, that sometimes he thinks in order to root out that greater sin of pride, the most grievous sin that is of pride, he sometimes lets men and women fall into maybe less grievous sin, but outwardly more shameful, in order to root out that great sin of pride and to humble us through it. And I thought about that in my own life, and I said, I think that is there's some truth to that. Sometimes God allows us to go our own way, and it's all right, do it your way. In order to let it humble us and bring it back, bring us back to Him. This was the great lesson they had to remember that we are to walk in humility before and if we forget that and we go our own way in pride, we're going to end up back in the enemy's camp. So this here is the first great truth that he was giving to them, the, the principle of humility. The principle of humility, to walk in humility before the Lord. The second one is this, is this principle of spirituality. The principle of spirituality, that, that men does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Our greatest need in life is not physical. That's what he's saying here. As important as our physical needs are, it's not our greatest need. Our greatest need is our spiritual need. Our spiritual need for God and for Christ. I was, uh, in our business, there is uh, a man that you would work, had worked for us for a number of years. And uh, he was a part of, um, something in my mind now, it's one of those Ponzi, or those pyramid schemes that uh, you can get a part of. I'm, it's slipping my mind what it's called now. But uh, anyways, he wanted me to come, what is it? Amway, yeah, is that right? <laughs> you know, you, you think of my mind. It's Amway, that's right. It's Amway, yep. So I don't know, maybe somebody is in Amway, but anyways. I, <laughs> anyways, I, I, we were talking about, he's in Amway. And uh, so he wanted me to be a part of this Amway thing. And we would talk and talk, and he would try to convince me to come to these meetings, and he would talk about what they were doing. In many ways, it was like church. They would have actually sermons and stuff that they would preach. And he began telling me, Kevin, if you believe it, you can get it. And you can speak this into existence. Money, that's what he was talking about. Don't you want to be free, Kevin? You can be financially free. Just think of all the money you can give away if you can be financially free. And he, we would talk and talk. And I said, and I began to think about what the devil himself came to Jesus and said, if you speak, you can turn these stones into bread. Just believe and turn these stones into bread. And I, we were talking about it, and, and he said, you just got to believe, Kevin. You got to speak it, the power of the tongue. You can just speak it and speak it and believe, and you'll get it, whatever you want. And so I said, so what can I all get if I do this? Like a million bucks? Yep, no problem, a million dollars. You, can, you just got to speak it and believe. So, you know, me, I said, how about a billion dollars? No, you can't do a billion dollars. I don't think you can do that. Just maybe a million. Said, okay, well, I'm gonna do the, if I'm going to do this, I'm the most I possibly can. And uh, he, didn't, he wasn't so sure about this. And, and I said, I just don't think that's something you can do. But when I was speaking to him, these verses came to my mind here. That our ultimate problem in life, our ultimate need in life, is not a physical need. It is a spiritual need. And if we forget this, God says, you're going to end up back in the enemy's camp. That men is not led by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so the second truth that he gives here is a principle of spirituality. And thirdly, it is a faith. He said, your clothes didn't wear out, your shoes didn't wear out, your foot didn't swell. He said, I took care of you. I fought your battles for you. 
And he says, if you forget these things, he says now at the very end in verse 18, but thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers, as is this day. This shall be, if thou do it all, forget the Lord thy God, and walk after other gods, and serve them, and worship them. I testify against you that this day ye shall surely perish. He said, if you forget these things, this is what's going to happen. And this is what's happening to Daniel here now. They had forgotten these three great principles. And here he is as a young man being taken off into another country. And he's going to have to learn to draw some lines in his life that he would not cross. I'd like to turn now to Daniel chapter 1. And we'll try to keep this moving here to get you home in a good time. But Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. And he says this, starting in Daniel 1, verse 1, he says this, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem, and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel, and of the king's seed, and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning and knowledge and understanding science and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace and in whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave name, for he gave unto Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Ezariah of Abednego. And then verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. see what the king was doing here. He was a brilliant, brilliant man. You don't get to be king of a nation like this without understanding at least how people are and how they work. But what he was going to do was he could take the best and the brightest, the best looking and the smartest young people and he was going to take them and retrain the way they thought in the language and the literature and the philosophy of the Chaldeans. And then he was going to take these young people as influencers to influence the rest of the Jews in a massive, in a massive way. That's what he's going to do. It's the same thing we see happening today, don't we? You take the young, the good-looking, the brilliant, and you retrain the way they think, and then send them out to influence the masses. Same thing we have today. And here was Daniel, and he recognized what was going on here at a very young age, and he drew the first line in his life, and it is this. He drew a line of resistance by training his appetites and his desires. He drew a line of resistance by training his appetites and his desires. You and I, men and women, God has given us a great responsibility and the privilege, really, to learn to train and to discipline our hungers and our passions. And we all have them. Now what is happening here, I, I don't know exactly. Some might say that, that this, this meat was offered to idols. It, it may, may have been. But I wonder if it wasn't more so that Daniel recognized what was going on here. Here the king was. He was going to wine and dine these boys up, soften them up, get them used to the easy life, the good life, get them all wine and dine, and then come in through the back door of the imagination and begin to train the way they thought and they think after the way it's the Chaldeans. And Daniel looked at him and said, King, I just ask you this. Give me a simple diet. Give me a simple diet. Give me a simple life. And you see what happens. I would tell you young people, you test me in this. So Daniel said, you live a simple life, not that we remove ourselves completely out of this world, but to learn to draw the lines of resistance as the world is trying to shape and mold you into its mold. 
You learn to draw these lines in the right places. That the, that the world will not be able to come in here and shape the way of who you are. Let me ask you today, what is it that you would say or you think is shaping our young people, our people, the most? I would say, even just looking at this, that what it is today is the media that we are bombarded with every day. Hollywood, YouTube, music, social media, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, whatever it is. And we take the best looking and the good looking and we put them before our eyes and it begins to shape us in ways we don't even understand, I think, sometimes. The advertisements we see all around us begin to shape and mold us after the ways of the world. A man by the name of Andrew Fletcher has said this, let me write the songs of a nation. I don't care who writes his laws. Let me write the songs of a nation. I don't care who writes his laws. There's something that, that there is something about music that has the ability, I think, to shape us in a way. I think it has a way of bringing the head and the heart together better than sometimes even a preaching does. It, it brings together those the emotions and the, the mind together. And he said, I, if you let me write the songs, I don't care who writes his laws. I'll change society through music. Then we also look at the, all the movies that come out of Hollywood. And then the pornography that comes with it as well. I said, I think, last night, one of the things that I loved as a young person was movies. I loved movies. I loved story. But I remember the one time as I watched this one certain video, it was about, it was about gladiators and they were fighting there, and it comes to the end, like it always does, the good guys against the bad guy, and you stand there, you have a sitting there, and it's thumbs up or thumbs down, right? That's how it always was. And here it comes to the very end, and the, the guy asked him, do I, do I thumbs up or thumbs down? And in my mind, I said, thumbs down. And then it hit me. My forefathers were in this very same Coliseum being killed for their faith. And here I am in my mind, actually involved in this very same thing. I said, what if, I looked into the mirror, I said, what's happening to me? How did I get to this place that I'm endorsing violence? What happened to me? And the whole area of pornography. When I was 19 years old, I was dating my girlfriend at the time and my, my brother-in-law was here we were both dating at the time. And one day we began talking about this very thing of pornography. And it was something that both of us, we came to realize that we both had become involved in through our phones and through, through some magazines that we had. And we said, this is not right, Wes. We, we, we began talking about it. That we, we need to make sure we tell our girlfriends before we would ever ask them to be married. It's a very difficult time for me and my wife to walk through that. And then me and Wes got talking and said, you know what, we should bring this up to our buddies at, in our youth group. He was going to be in charge of a Bible study at our youth retreat. And we said, you know what, we ought to bring this up to our buddies and see what's what they think about it. And we got there and started talking about it. And so Wes said, all right, he didn't charge us. I'll back you up. We'll talk. We need to talk about this stuff. This is real, I think. We didn't talk about it at all as friends. We didn't know. And so Wes said, hey, I just wondering if we had this us guys together in the Bible study there at Ebenezer Bible School, where we were at. And Wes said, what do you guys think about this? And it turned out that every single one of us young men were stuck in this very thing. And we said, you all are, we, all, we all are here. You know, we brought internet into our home because of business, right? We needed it for business. We, we, we need it, and I understand that. I'm in business, I understand that. But I wonder sometimes at what we have now opened ourselves up to because of this very thing. I know we can have filters and not, I, I understand these things. But young people aren't dumb. I'm not dumb. I can figure out how to get around things that I want to. 
And I just want to say, I'm not saying we throw these things out, but I think we want to be very careful on how we handle the whole idea of the media and social media and all this stuff. I have a friend by the name of Delmore Martin. Uh, he is the son of Gerald and Lausanne Martin, but he's a Gerald and Lausanne or the bishop there at Fairhaven. And uh, Delmore, at the age of about 20, decided to go down to Nicaragua to be a missionary, which spoke quite a bit to me at 20 years old because I was living for myself at that point. And here my buddies are going off as missionaries into a foreign country to serve in an indefinite amount of time. Was it going to be there till whenever he wanted to come back? So he ended up being there 10 years. While he was down there, he felt the Lord leading him to become a doctor. And he went for his doctorate down there, and is now he's now come back to Virginia, and he's serving uh, as a, in a practice down there in Virginia. Actually, Keith Crater, they went to the same church. If you know Keith Crater, he passed away recently. Same church they go to. One of the things that Delmore does is he helps to do surgeries. And one of the things that he must do when he does a surgery on a person, especially when they have contaminated blood, such as HIV or, or hepatitis, something like that, some kind of blood disease, he has to be very careful when he does surgery on a person like that. And the reason is that, is that his blood comes in contact with that person's contaminated blood, his life could be compromised. And all it takes in Delmar is just a little paper cut in his finger. It's all it takes for that bad, bad blood to get in there and his life to be gone. I ask you this, guys. Are there paper cuts to the soul? A little cut here, a little cut here, a little cut here. And the bad blood gets in there, and the life and the soul is compromised. And someday we look into that mirror and say, what happened to me? How did I get here? How did these things happen? Jesus tells us that the eye must be single. And that the eye, and the light of the eye goes dark. How great is that darkness indeed? The, the temptation that comes to us that stolen waters are sweet, but it's a lie. It's a lie. The thing that pornography does, it creates in you a feeling that no one person can ever fulfill. Well, never fulfill, it takes more and more and more, taking us down to a greater and greater path of sin and death and heartache. Well, this here is Daniel. And he recognized, I think, what was happening here. He said, give me a simple diet. Let me draw the lines, please. Let me draw the lines here. And I would say that there's someone here who has crossed the line they wish they didn't. It's because, no, like, no doubt, they crossed the line back here where they should have drawn it. And they crossed the line, and they crossed the line, and they crossed the line until they came to a place that they wish they never got to. And so, the first line that I see Daniel drawing is this, is that he drew that line of resistance by training and disciplining his hungers and his passions. He purposed in his heart he would not eat of the king's meat. And God blessed him for that. He, made him, he ended up becoming ten times wiser than all the other men there in the kingdom. God blessed him for that. And he came ten times, he was given wisdom greater than ten times anybody else. As you know, the story goes along, it is as Nebuchadnezzar uh, then has this dream, and um, he calls all of the, uh, the wise men together, and he says, hey guys, I had this dream. And I can't remember what it is, and so I want you to tell me what it is. And then give the interpretation thereof. And, uh, you know, as I studied through this a little bit, I, I wonder to myself as if Nebuchadnezzar didn't actually know what that dream was. And he was going to test these boys out and see if they're actually as smart as they say they are. You know, we, we're smart and we're, we, we talk with some gods, you know. We, we have all this stuff. And he's like, eh, he was smart. He said, I had this dream, and it scared the wits out of me. But I want you to tell me what it is. And you see the point that he gets very angry at him is, that, is the point that when they say, well, nobody answered this, not, and only the gods could know it. And at that point, when he became very angry. That's what makes me think that he did actually know. He was testing them to what they, what they, uh, what they actually knew. As I was thinking again on this whole story, I, I thought, you know, 
and then maybe a little bit of a way, these astrologers and things were sort of the, uh, the Google of their time. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but I was thinking about it. You know, Google gives us answers, right? And what it does is it, it uses the algorithms of trying to understand who you are, and then it gives you the answer it, it thinks that you want to hear, right? That's what, that's what Google does. It trying to understand who you are, and it gives you an answer it thinks you want to hear. Well, that's the same thing that these guys are doing. That you give us a question, and we'll give you the answer. Now, I am not against Google, not saying you don't use Google. I use Google MapQuest, and we do researching this stuff. But the difference between Google and God is that Google doesn't really know you. They don't really know you. God does. And that's why I think it's still good. We still come back to God's Word. The Bible says that the Scripture is, is sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing asunder the very thoughts and intents of our hearts. Google will give you what you want to hear. Christ will give you what you need to hear. That's the difference. And maybe we don't like to hear what we need to hear. That's why we go to Google maybe sometimes. But that's why when we look for answers, we don't want to neglect God's Word. We, don't, we can use Google, but we don't want to neglect his word, because that's where we're going to find out who we really are, what we need to hear. But as the story goes, then Nebuchadnezzar becomes angry and says, "Kill him!" And for some reason, Daniel and his friends are not there, and so they must have been in a different area, I guess, perhaps. And Ariok comes to arrest Daniel. Daniel says, "Answered with wisdom." He said, "What's what's the big deal here, Eric? Ariok? What's going on?" Ariok tells him what happened. And Daniel said, "Can I please go meet with the king? Give me a moment with the king." And so Daniel gives, was given the permission to do that, and he goes and tells the king, says, King, give me a little bit of time, and I will get you the answer that you're looking for. And that night he goes home and meets with his friends, and, and I think it's a beautiful thing here. We see the second line that he draws it is this in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 17. It says this Then Daniel went to his house and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions that they would desire mercies of the God of heaven concerning this secret, that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. The second line I see him drawing here is this, is that he drew a line of dependence by going to God for wisdom. He drew a line of dependence by going to God for wisdom. This man, Daniel, was brilliant. He was ten times wiser than everybody else. But he understood where his understanding in life ended and where his need for God really began. You know, as men, I know for myself sometimes, we can begin to look at ourselves like we're the cat's whiskers sometimes, don't we? Pretty smart. I know what I'm doing. Don't need anyone's help. I heard a little joke a little bit ago about uh, Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali was the world's greatest boxer, self-proclaimed greatest boxer. And one night he was flying on an airplane and uh, the seatbelt sign came on and you could put your seatbelts on. And everyone complies that Muhammad Ali. And Ali was sitting there and pretty proud of himself and uh, the stewardess came up around and said, sir, you need to put your seatbelt on. And he said this, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And the steward said, Superman don't need no airplane either. Seatbelt. Sometimes in life, I think we can come to a place where we see ourselves as just that, as great supermen who need nothing. But here was Daniel with all his brilliance and greatness, and he recognized his need for God. He said, Lord, will you give us the secret? Will you give us wisdom? We need wisdom very much. Raising our children, Lord, give me wisdom to raise my children. How to love my wife. How to lead in a church. How to make decisions for my life every day. We need this wisdom. Lord, would you give us the secret? Please, would you show mercy to us? Give us the secret. Give us the wisdom we need. I think there's two places to be, we find wisdom. Number one is this, is God's word. That's where we go to for wisdom. 
We find it through prayer and through Bible reading. Disciplining ourselves in these things is part of a disciplined life. We need it. We need this. We sometimes it feels like we have to do it. You know, we've got to have our devotions. But I, I hope we can look at it towards something I need to begin my day early with prayer and with Bible reading, walking with my Lord. Because what's going to happen is I go through my day. The temptations are going to come. The decisions are going to come, and I need to have that foundation built there so that I can make those wise decisions as they come at snap instants. David said, Oh, how loved by thy law. Can you say that? Blessed is a man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of the sinner, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Jesus said at the very end of his sermon, like great sermon on the mount, He that listens to my words and does them, I will liken to a wise man that built his house upon the rock, so that when the storms of life come, and the rains come, that house can remain firm. You know, we sing that wonderful children's song, The Wise Men Build His House Upon the Rock. What's the greatest part of that whole song? Right? We love that part. <laughs> we sit and laugh and smile at each other. The foolish man builds his house upon the sand. Let me tell you something. When that happens in life, nobody's laughing. It's not funny at all. And we need this wisdom. And Daniel recognized his need for wisdom. He said, brothers, would you help pray with me, please? And so the first place I'll give you this is, is God's word. We fill our minds with it. We fill our minds with it. A man says, what do you want to I just recently said, when you study the Bible, just take a whole book of the Bible, read down through the whole thing at one shot, and do that for 30 days, same verses over and over and over again. You'll begin to learn exactly where the verses are and what they mean, and begin to get the whole context of that Bible. And if you go and come to a big book, maybe take seven chapters, do the same thing, but begin to fill your mind with God's word to understand it, and then to apply it to your life. We need this wisdom. The second one I would give you is this. Is to find somebody in life who has gone through a lot and whose faith has remained strong. The verse of the song goes like this. In love's service, it's the wounded soldier who runs best. And learn to find these men who have gone through a lot in life, perhaps a lot of difficulty, and whose faith has remained strong. You see it with Moses and Joshua. We see it Elijah and Elisha. You see Timothy and Paul. Different examples of this. And to be able to humble ourselves before our brothers and say, Brother, would you help me? Would you pray for me? I don't know what you're going through. Perhaps it's a, a marriage relationship. Maybe it's a financial issue. Maybe it's some relationship that you're dealing with or some decision you need to make. Are you willing to humble yourself and go say, Brother, would you help me? Would you help me? Would you pray for me? Daniel was a tremendously gifted man, but he recognized his need for God and for his other brothers. And so he drew that line of dependence by going to God for wisdom. And thirdly is this. As you know the story well, the three Hebrew boys there at the, at the, uh, the golden idol. And the, the Nebuchadnezzar said, if you don't bow, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. And they looked at him and said, King, live forever. Our God's going to rescue us. But even if he doesn't, I still won't compromise. He drew a line of confidence by putting his trust in the hand of a sovereign God who loved him. My God's going to rescue me. Either he'll deliver me out of this fiery furnace or he'll deliver me up on chariots of fire and take me home. Either way, I won't compromise. And he drew that line of confidence by putting his trust in the hands of his sovereign God who loved him. God's going to rescue me. But even if he doesn't, we still won't compromise. And did the same thing in the lion's den. He said, I still won't compromise. These are the lines that I think I see in Daniel that he drew. A line of resistance by training his appetite. A line of dependence by going to God for wisdom. And a line of confidence by putting his trust in the hands of a sovereign God. This, I think, is a blueprint that God is looking for each one of us. I'll just end with a little story yet, and then I'll be finished. It's a story that I heard a couple of years ago. It's about a, a woman by the name of Mother Teresa. I don't know if you ever heard of Mother Teresa. She was a... Uh, Someone that 
died a couple years ago now, but she was a, a Catholic nun who served over in India. And I recognize that she's Catholic and we don't agree with everything that they do and believe. But she was somebody that the world recognized as a good person. Very, very famous person who did, did quite a bit of good. She had an orphanage over in India. The motto of that orphanage was, give us the destitute of the destitute. So when once everyone rejects this person, those are the ones we want. Well, back in the 1990s, the year that Bill, President Bill Clinton was running for a second term of office, they had uh, a prayer breakfast down in Washington, D.C., and they invited uh, Mother Teresa to come and speak at this prayer breakfast. She's about a four foot six woman, not real tall. And uh, they asked her to come and speak. And President Bill Clinton would have been sitting there right, right next to her as she spoke. And what she spoke on was the whole issue of abortion. Saying that this is the weakest among us and you are killing them. And this was one of the uh, platforms that President Clinton was running for on his second term of office. And so, of course, the uh, prophets of our day, the media, had to catch up with Mr. Clinton afterwards and to get his reaction to what she just said. And he said, Mr. Sir, you, she just really hammered what you've been standing for on abortion. What is your reaction to this? And her response to it was fascinating. His response to it was fascinating to me. He paused for a moment looked at the camera, and said this. You know, it's hard to argue against a life so well lived. And I thought to myself, that is a, quite a true statement. There is no real argument against a life that's been well lived. And three different, those lines were crossed, but it wasn't by Daniel. Three different kings looked at the life of Daniel and said, that's what we're missing. Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, and Cyrus. They said, that's what we're looking for. That's what we're missing. And they crossed those lines and came over to Daniel's side. Daniel's name means God is my judge. And that's the way he lived his life. Recognizing his greatest accountability was to God himself. But I think it comes down to a man or a woman who is willing to draw these lines in the right places. A line of resistance, a line of dependence, and a line of confidence. And Jesus says then, let your light so shine before men that they might see your convictions and see your good works and be drawn to my Father which is in heaven. I'd like to give an invitation here tonight. Perhaps there is someone here who has crossed some lines that they know they never should have. And the Lord has been speaking to you about them tonight, perhaps, and recently. And you know you're not walking right with Him. I'd like to give you a chance here tonight to make these things right. God loves you, but he wants you to walk in a holiness with him. And let your light so shine before men that they might see your light and be drawn to him. So I'd like to give an invitation tonight, if the Lord has been speaking to you, as you would come forward and make these things right. We're going to sing a song, maybe a verse or two, and if God has been speaking to you, I invite you to come forward and somebody will pray with you. What, what song should we sing? 728, the church. All right, number 700. 28. If God has spoken to you tonight and you know, and you know you're not right with Him, I just encourage you to come forward and make these things right tonight. Shall we sing?
Please ask you to continue to pray for the rest of the week. Ask the Lord to continue to lead and direct us to speak. So shall we stand for a word of prayer? Well, Father, we thank you for your word again. We are able to look at tonight in this life of Daniel, you put into your word as a way to look and give us direction what it looks like to walk in faithfulness with you. Lord, I just pray if there's someone here that doesn't know you or is not walking after you in the ways of holiness, as you would continue to speak and to convict, to bring them back home and to bring peace. Thank you for being with us again, Lord, tonight. Commit each one that's here to you. Help us to remain faithful to you. Call us home. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.